Well, thank you, Andrew. Did a good job for just hearing about it this morning, didn't he? Chris and Carla, beautifully done. As I mentioned earlier, today launches the most important week in the history of the planet. Pretty impressive. Now, Jesus spent 1,700 weeks on the earth. Actually, 1,716, to be exact, if you do the math. Um, if you were writing the story of his life, how would you divide the space in your book? He did miracles. He told wonderful parables. His birth was a great moment of celebration. So dividing up this incredible life into segments would be pretty complicated. But you know, if you read the Gospels, when you read the Gospels, you discover that 31% of Matthew is devoted to this one week. 25% of Mark, out of 1,700 weeks, focuses on this one week. 20% of Luke, 40% of John's Gospel is focused on this one week, which gives you some sense that this is a pretty important week. Pretty important week. A lot happened. And it launched on this day we celebrate as Palm Sunday. And as we read the Gospels, we find various uh, different Gospels focus on different events, different moments in this week, and especially in this uh, one day of the week, this day that Jesus marched into Jerusalem, which is what we want to focus on today. Let me encourage you this week to to meditate through this week. Just take a few moments each day and pick one of these passages that talk about what Jesus did on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. Of course, Friday was the crucifixion, and then Sunday, uh, Saturday is silent, and then Sunday is the, the resurrection day. So a, an incredible week. And uh, the, the events of this week could be lost, could be sort of overshadowed and some of the more dramatic things that Jesus did. I mentioned the parables and the miracles, walking on the water, raising the dead. We think of these events, but this week can get sort of lost, except the gospel writer said, this is the week we must focus on. And uh, uh, it, 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 let me just read it from John's uh, uh, gospel. Uh, the great crowd, uh, not the week, but just this day that we're celebrating today, this event where Jesus marched into Jerusalem, the great crowd that had come for the Passover festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. So in, in spite of what we call it is, as uh, the triumphal entry, actually it was a pretty humble entry, as we'll see in a moment. But as the people observed it, there were various groups that the gospel writers mentioned. You have the, the crowd, the multitude. You have the leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, 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 the leaders, the, the, the religious leaders. 
And then they talk about the disciples and the ones who had followed him. And the disciples are used in two ways in this literature. The, the general follower, the larger group of people who followed Jesus, and then a couple places that refer specifically to the twelve. So you have those three groups primarily, the, the multitudes, the religious leaders, and the disciples, and then of course the primary character, the main character, is Jesus himself. So let's first of all, we see that the crowd praised him for what they thought he would do. Now the great mystery this week is it begins on Sunday, and people are praising him, Hosanna, praise to the king of the son of David, and all that great praise, and then on Friday they're yelling, crucify him. What in the world happened? How could this same group or many of this same group on Sunday praise him and on Friday call for his death? Well, let's read what some of the gospel writers say about the crowd. It begins, the crowd praised him for what they thought he would do. Luke 19 tells us, because Jesus was near Jerusalem. He was coming, he was in Bethany, he was on his way to Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And they thought, man, this whole, all these Old Testament prophecies, all these things about driving out the Romans and, and the Messiah is going to sit on the throne and we will, as Jews, will rule over the world with him and it'll be a time of peace and righteousness and justice. Wow, and it's going to start. He's coming, he's coming. They thought the kingdom was going to come immediately. Well, uh, he told them a parable because they thought this was going to happen immediately. He told a parable about a nobleman who went away to a far country to be crowned as a king. And when he came back home, the people rejected him. And Jesus told that parable because he wanted them to understand what was going to take place that what they thought he was going to do, he was not going to do. And at the end of that week, those who were praising him would reject him because he didn't fit their categories. He didn't fit the bill. John tells us that a week before, he had been in a little town called Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. And uh, so meanwhile, it says in Bethany, a, a, a large crowd of Jews found that Jesus was there in Bethany and came not only because of him, but to see Lazarus. Because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And people were there, it was like a circus show. Hey, we got to go see this guy. Did this really happen? This Jesus guy raised somebody from the dead? So there was a crowd there in Bethany because they were all enthralled, all excited about this thing, who, to see uh, Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this miracle, went out to meet him. So the idea is that the people who were in Bethany when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead were just blown away. I mean, you can imagine. You go to a funeral, the guy gets up. <laughs> wow. Hey, Grandma, good to see you again. It don't happen. Except it did happen here. And these people, this, this guy's got to be the real deal. So they came back and they were celebrating and talking about it. But the news had spread. It had been over a week. And the news, and a lot of other people, they weren't there. But they said, man, did that really happen? And so, yeah, their friends were telling them about it. So that's what he's saying. Many people, because they had heard he performed these miracle signs, went out to meet him. 
And, and then we read that the next day, after he had left Bethany, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So you've got two crowds. You've got the crowd following Jesus in from Bethany, and then you've got the people who had heard the news about the, the previous raising of Lazarus from the dead. They were in Jerusalem. So it says the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the Passover feast, thousands of people in Jerusalem at that time for that great celebration. They, they, they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And these words that they're using, Hosanna, save us. Kick out the Romans. Give us this life that we read about in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah where, where it's all at peace and, 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 and the fruit trees are, are blooming and everything is wonderful. We're, we're really looking forward to that. Could, man, that could happen soon. So they were coming out praising him. And, and then in John 12, we read the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Oh, I just read that to you, didn't I? So we don't need to do that one again. Mark 11. I, I'm reading a lot because I'm going from gospel to gospel. So I put these things together to sort of tell you the story. But to tell it to you from the scriptures. Mark 11 said, many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And if you read Matthew, read that Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because Abraham, yes, the Abrahamic covenant said you are God's chosen people. Beautiful, wonderful. But the Davidic covenant said one of David's descendants will come and be not only the king of Israel, but he will be the king of the whole world. And Israel will rule and reign with him. It'll be a glorious day for Israel. And Israel who had suffered under the Babylonians, suffered under the Persians, suffered under the Greeks, and now are suffering under the Romans. We're saying, you mean when the Messiah comes, it's going to be self-rule, us under the king? Yeah. So that's what they were anticipating. And everything within just a few days. We're waiting for this great thundering, this whatever he's going to do, and the angels will come, and he'll drive out the Romans. Pretty exciting stuff. Got so excited, I got thirsty. In fact, John tells us that many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Because while the crowds enthusiastically praised Jesus and looked forward to, with just a few days, the kingdom would be here, there was another group that said it ain't going to happen. Not going to happen. Not while we're here. It's like they asked God, you know, will, will the Messiah ever come? And they said, we hope not, <laughs> because we got a pretty cushy deal here, these leaders. So the leaders determined to condemn Jesus even before his visit to Jerusalem. And this is the high point, but Jesus had been gathered, uh, 
uh, coming to the attention of these religious leaders because of the signs and the miracles and because of the number of people that were abandoning them and following Jesus and this new teaching he had. So we read in John 11, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, many of the uh, uh, Jews who had come to visit Lazarus had seen what Jesus did, and they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. They hauled in the heavy artillery, the big dudes. What are we accomplishing, they asked. What is this man performing many signs? What's he doing? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And we lose. That's not in the text. I added that. Then Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. They were saying, we have our own interests. We don't care who he is. We don't care what he teaches. We don't care what evidence he gives us. We will not believe because there's too much at stake for us. John 12 tells us, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was in Bethany and came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So even before this great moment when the crowds came proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of David, the great Savior. The religious leadership had already determined that it was not going to happen, that he was not going to sit on the throne of David. And then when he came into the city, and the children and the people and the crowds were yelling and proclaiming him, the leaders condemned those who praised Jesus. Luke 19 tells us, when Jesus came near, on the Mount of Olives, the road that leads down into Jerusalem, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't you hear? They're calling you God. They think you're the Messiah. Rebuke them. Tell them the truth. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they're quiet, the rocks will cry out. All of nature, even the dead rocks, will proclaim the truth. You poor guys are dumber than the rocks. They get it, you don't. Then later, Jesus, after he went into the town, into Jerusalem, he went to the temple. And the blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple court, wasn't that beautiful this morning? Well, that's not in the text. I'm adding that. The children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. 
Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? What they're doing is entirely appropriate because, hey, guys, I am the real deal. <laughs> what they're saying is true. You put blinders on. You don't want this to be real. You don't want this to be true. But guess what? It is. The rocks get it. The kids get it. The crowds get it. But you don't. So you have the crowds with the children crying, Hosanna, son of David, save us, save us. Then you have the leaders saying, it ain't going to happen. We'll do everything we have to do to stop this from happening. But then a third group that the uh, gospel writers address are the disciples. The, the larger crowd comes up here and there, but, but it, it, he, the, uh, I want to focus on the 12, because these are the guys who should know. I mean, they have been with Jesus. They've been eating with him. They've been traveling around with him, listening to his parables and his teachings off and on over for three years. But we read in Perea, weeks before the Jerusalem entry, we read this in Luke. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. And they expected him to say the kingdom will come. But what he said is, he will be delivered over the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Then Luke tells us the disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did know, not know what he was talking about. This was the first announcement that he had really come not to sit on David's throne, but to die on the Roman's cross. And it was so baffling. It was so out of what anybody would imagine that even his disciples did not know what he was talking about. And that's just before going into Jerusalem in John 12. At first, it says his disciples did not understand any of this. Only after Jesus was raised from the dead, glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. So it took this, the whole event, the crucifixion, the resurrection, which we'll talk about next week, an incredible moment, just a baffling thing that Jesus came out of the grave and how it changed these people's lives and especially these 11 of the 12 guys who had followed him. They didn't understand. It was just so unbelievable that they couldn't believe it. Then in Luke 9, we read, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. They didn't grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. You've been in class and you have this question. And you think everybody else probably knows the answer. <laughs> you think, well, I'm not going to be stupid enough to 
as good. It was like, he's told us so many times, we come off like morons. How could we not? An argument. Then this, Luke drops this in. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. So Jesus is dealing with profound truth about himself, the Messiah, and what they're going to do. And these guys are over here arguing about which one of them was the greatest. And then we read again at the Last Supper, the end of this week, Thursday night of the same week, he, Jesus was telling the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Jesus had just announced that Judas would betray him. They began to question among themselves which one of them this would be. And then John tell, Luke tells us, a dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was considered to be the greatest. Now, I think one of the reasons these guys didn't get it, one of the reasons, even though Jesus explained it, we have two recordings of Jesus explaining to them what he was all about. And they're saying, huh? We weren't listening. We weren't paying attention. We were so preoccupied about which one of us was the best in the bunch that we weren't even listening. It blew right over our heads. I think the Luke and John included that phrase, pardon me, Luke included that phrase twice, that they were disputing among themselves who was the greatest. They were so preoccupied with themselves that they missed the great point of what Jesus was about. So we have the crowd, somewhat confused, somewhat, uh, some of them got it. They were there with Lazarus. Others just had heard the news, and they were probably curious onlookers, and many of them were just sort of a, a, a mob moment, taken up, swept up in the thing. And then you have the leaders whose minds were very much made up, very committed. This guy is not going to sit on the throne of David, not while we're here. And then you have the disciples who should have known, if anybody would know, but they were too busy thinking about themselves to be thinking about Jesus. Oh, and there's one other character in the story. Jesus. <laughs> what was his view of all this? How, how did he see all this? Well, I believe that Jesus' humble entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, not on a war horse, not on a white horse like Alexander the Great when he drove the Persians out of Jerusalem. He marched in there with his soldiers on a great white horse. Judas Maccabeus, when he drove the Greeks out of Jerusalem, entered with his retinue on a great white horse. That's what kings did. After Solomon, the other kings of Israel and Judah, when they were crowned, found the biggest, baddest, best-looking horse they could find, because that was part of royalty. And Jesus looked like the man from La Mancha. <laughs> Sitting on a little donkey, probably his feet dragging on the ground, came humbly into the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus looked beyond the immediate to the ultimate. And he said, you know, I am going to sit on that throne. And I am going to rule the world from Jerusalem. 
And John tells us what that's going to be like in the book of Revelation. Revelation 19. John says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord Almighty reigns. If you think that crowd in Jerusalem made a noise, John said this is like the sound of Niagara Falls or Victoria Falls. Sound like great peals of thunder, just wow! Shouting, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, ha, whose rider is called Faithful and True. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. On his robe, and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yeah, he came in on a donkey, but the day is coming. He's coming in on his white horse. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So what the crowd was anticipating is going to happen. And my friends, this is future to you and me. There will be a day when Jesus will return to this earth. And he will return to the city of Jerusalem, riding on his white horse. <laughs> Literally or figuratively, we don't know. But the image is he will come as the conquering king. And he will march into the city of Jerusalem and he will take his seat on the throne of David and fulfill the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant as he promised. But for that to happen, he had to make this happen first. You see, he was on his way to that great throne, but there were two stops he had to make first. The first stop was the cross, because Jesus didn't come to sit on a throne immediately. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to die for your sins and mine because we can't die for our own sins. Only the sinless, perfect Son of God could pay the price for your sin and for mine. And before he could sit on that throne that we read about in Revelation, he had to be rejected by the people. He had to hear them cry out, crucify him. And he had to go through that horrible ordeal of bearing the sins of the earth. And the second stop after the cross was the resurrection. That's what sealed the deal. You can kill him, but you can't make him stay dead. 
And the ultimate final proof of all of his claims is that he came back from the grave. He is alive. He is alive. And he reigns right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he earned that by paying the price and being raised from the dead to give you and me eternal life. And so we read that as the people approached Jerusalem, Jesus instructed two of his disciples to go to the village and you'll find a donkey tied there. Untie her and bring her to me. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and he is endowed with salvation. But he's humble. And he's riding on a donkey. Because his ultimate entrance into Jerusalem is delayed until he fulfills the reason he came to earth. To die. To be raised again. So that every human being on the planet has the opportunity to say, Lord Jesus... I have sinned. And I am separated from you because sin separates between God and humans. And I'm asking you to forgive my sin. And you can do that because you have paid the penalty. I can't pay the penalty, but you have. And without that crucifixion and that resurrection, all that we read in the book of Revelation would be fantasy. Now, I find in some ways that at some times I identify with each of these groups. As I go through this week and I have my little thing and I'm reading, I also realize that there's another part of me that struggles. Sometimes I'm like the crowd. He doesn't always give me what I want. I have enormous expectations. If I get a hangnail, he's supposed to fix it. Because I suffer. I'm not a rich man. I'd like to be. He didn't give me a lot of money. Thought he would. Didn't. Other things that have gone on in my life have been terribly disappointing. Had to struggle with it. Jesus, you were supposed to take care of me. And he said, I am taking care of you because you grow through pain, through discipline. So relax. Chill out, Bubba. I love you. I got it. I'm giving you not always what you want, but I am always giving you what you need. So I have to stop and remind myself. I can be a member of that crowd but I can also pray my way out of it. I can be sort of like those leaders because sometimes Jesus threatens my lifestyle. There are things I kind of would like to do, but I read the Bible and says, uh-uh-uh, that's going to hurt you. It's called sin. Don't do that. I say, but I want to. It feels so good. No. Be holy as I am holy. And as we'll see next week, if I weren't a Christian, 
I could do pretty much whatever I wanted. But because I named the name of Christ, I can't do whatever I want. Now, these leaders had a solution to that. He's putting restrictions on us, so get rid of him. I don't know if you've ever been tempted to do that. I wrestle with that sometimes. Sometimes I'm like the disciples. I get so focused on me and how important I am that I miss his agenda. Sometimes he tells me, humble yourself and go do some things that you might not otherwise do. I say, I'm not listening. So however you process Jesus, however your, your attitude toward him comes and goes, my suggestion is that we be aware, be constantly plugged in. Check in on a regular basis. Lord, remind me of who I am. That I am who you say I am, not who I think I am. And that you are who you say you are, not who I sometimes think you are. So these different groups had different attitudes, different responses to our Lord Jesus. The crowd, confused. The leaders, no way. The disciples, huh? How do you relate to this man named Jesus?